Aaron Alf here from BicycleTrainPro.com. It is 6 p.m. here in Poznan, Poland, my current location in Poznan, Poland. Uh, I promised to begin at 6 o'clock, so I think we will just get started. Where am I right now? Maybe I'll begin with that. Um, I'm in Poznan, Poland. I've, I've just finished a two-month-long bike tour across Europe. I rode my bike for the last two months across uh, Portugal, Spain, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Austria, and Hungary. So those are the countries that I went to in Europe this year. And um, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a, just a minute. Let me start by introducing myself for those of you who maybe don't know who I am. My name is Darren Alf, and I am the Bicycle Touring Pro. Um, I run the website BicycleTouringPro.com, and I uh, created the website back in 2007 and have, for the last 10 or 11 years, uh, have been helping people from all around the world learn how to conduct their own bicycle touring adventures. So I myself, um, while I might look like a young guy, have actually been bicycle touring around the world for the last 18 years. And uh, in that time, I've ridden my bike across about 70 different countries or so. I, I, I'm not exactly sure um, how many. I haven't totaled it all up recently, but somewhere around 70. And um, what I do most of the time now as the Bicycle Train Pro is I, I conduct my own bike tours, but I also, um, what, what I take the most pride in is helping other people learn how to conduct their own bicycle touring adventures. And that's what I do through my website at bicycletouringpro.com and also through the videos that I produce on the Bicycle Touring Pro YouTube channel. I've got a podcast and I've written over 1,200 free articles that are up on my website at bicycletouringpro.com. So through all of that, um, I've been helping people from all around the world learn how to travel by bicycle. Now, you might be wondering if you're totally new to bike touring, what exactly is bicycle touring? Um, bicycle touring, and what I'm going to be talking about today, is the act of riding your bicycle for days, weeks, months, or even years on end as you travel across cities, states, and, and even countries under your own power with a, with a bicycle. And, um, and so how does bicycle touring differ from just riding your bike? Well, most people who have a bicycle go on what would be considered like a day ride. They, they live somewhere and they, they get their bike and they, they ride, you know, 10, 20 kilometers or something around where they live. And then they come back home and that's the end of the bike ride. And that's how most people ride a bike. But bicycle touring uh, is, is an overnight activity. And so uh, if you were to ride your bike to a nearby campground, for example, spend your night at that campground and then cycle back home the following day, that would technically be a bicycle tour because it, it involved an overnight stay. And there's a whole bunch of different ways to bicycle tour. And I talk about that on my website at bicycletouringpro.com. And I also talk about that inside my book, The Bicycle Touring Blueprint. Um, but for now, just know that bicycle touring is the act of riding your bicycle for several days. It has to be generally more than one day. And it, and it can be, like I said, several weeks, several months, or even several years. Uh, my longest bike tour, for example, was about two years long where I did not come home or stop cycling for two years straight. 
So um, yeah, that's that's a very very brief overview of what bicycle terrain is. And today I want to talk more in depth about what bicycle touring is like in Eastern Europe, which is where I happen to be right now. So I'm I'm I, I finished this bike tour in in Europe that I just mentioned a moment ago. And now I have rented this small studio apartment in Poznan, Poland. I'll, I'll try to just lift up my camera so you can see it a little bit. But um, anyways, here's my little place. And um, yeah, so I, I'm here now doing computer work for Bicycle Turn Pro. I'm editing a bunch of new videos for the Bicycle Turn Pro YouTube channel. Um, that's going to be coming out soon. So I'm pretty excited to share that with you. And um, I actually just finished editing the first five videos um, that I'm going to be releasing soon. Take note, this Thursday, I will be releasing the first video. Um, so if you, I know a lot of you guys have been messaging me and saying, where are the videos? Um, the videos are coming and they're coming this Thursday. So the first video is going to be from a bike tour that I did actually in the United States before I came to Europe. And it's a bike tour that I did in Northern California up in the Redwoods. Um, these really tall trees that grow along the coast in Northern California. So um, stay tuned for that. There, This is a five part series from the Redwood, uh, Redwood bike tour that I did. And I think all five of these videos that I have coming out, you're really gonna enjoy. So, um, Please watch them when they do come out and, and please leave a comment and let me know uh, what you liked or disliked about the videos. I, I really enjoy reading all your guys' comments when those videos come out. Anyways, so um, I'm in Europe now and because I'm in, I'm in Eastern Europe now and because I'm in Eastern Europe and I just finished a bike tour in Eastern Europe, I thought that this would be the perfect time to talk about what it's like to go bicycle touring in Eastern Europe. Now, Eastern Europe, what is Eastern Europe exactly? Well, if you don't know, um, it, it's a, you, you might want to get a map out and look at what Europe is. But the definition of what Eastern Europe is is actually a little controversial. There's no actual, say, divide between what is the East and the West, per se. And there's some arguments about you know, which countries are East and which countries are West and all that sort of thing. And there's different ways to divide the East and the West. Some, some people divide the East and the West on um, like religious borders and other people divide the East and the West based off of the Cold War and things like that. So um, what I'm calling Eastern Europe would include the countries of, I'm just going to name these all like off the top of my head, but would include the countries of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Russia, Belarus, uh, Poland, the Czech Republic, um, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Romania, Moldova, uh, what, what am I missing? Uh, hung, did I say Hungary? Yes. Slovenia, Croatia, Montenegro, Albania, Macedonia, Kosovo, Serbia, Bosnia, um, Bulgaria, Greece, Turkey, Cyprus, did I miss any? I think that's it. So those are the countries that I'm talking about when I say Eastern Europe. Um, and, and just so you know, I have ridden my bicycle across every country in Europe, East and West, 
except for three countries. So I've, I've, I've not been to Russia, Belarus, or Cyprus. So I'm not gonna talk about those three countries because I don't have any personal experience there. But every other country in Europe, I've actually ridden my bicycle across. So I do feel like I have a pretty good uh, understanding of what these countries are like from a cycling perspective. Um, some of the countries like uh, Moldova, for example, which is a very small country that's kind of sandwiched between uh, Romania and, and um, Ukraine, it, I, I've really only spent like a week there. So I, you know, I can't speak a whole lot to the country, but one week is, is some experience at the very least. Um, other countries I have quite a bit of experience in, such as Romania um, or Poland, and um, and so yeah, just want to throw that out there as well is that some of these countries I know very very well, and other countries not, not as deeply. Um, but anyways, that's what I wanted to talk about today. I just wanted to I there's a lot that I could talk about when it comes to bicycle training in Eastern Europe. There there are a couple things that I, I do want to mention. First of all, I just want to tell you why it's worth going to to Eastern Europe because a lot of people um, who are into cycling and they, and they consider even coming to Europe or maybe you're already from Europe and, and you wanna go bike touring somewhere, um, a lot of people don't consider Eastern Europe as a place to go for, for several reasons. They think it's unsafe, um, they think it's dirty, they're afraid of the language gap, um, but there are a whole lot of reasons to go bicycle turn in Eastern Europe. And I think the, the, the one reason that drew me to Eastern Europe when I first began bicycle touring was the fact that Eastern Europe is inexpensive and it's way less exp inexpensive than Western Europe in a lot of the cases. For food, lodging, public transportation, et cetera, Eastern Europe is a way cheaper place to go pretty much no matter which country you choose. Now, some countries are obviously way cheaper than others. Um, I have paid as little as like five or six US dollars for a hotel room in certain countries in Eastern Europe, like Albania, Bulgaria, Ukraine, for example. Um, I've gotten hotel rooms there that cost five, six, seven dollars a night. Um, other countries like Romania, uh, Greece, even uh, Poland, um, Czech Republic, Slovakia. Uh, I usually pay somewhere like around the $20 mark for hotel rooms, um, depending, you know. Some, there are obviously like more expensive hotel rooms. But anyways, that gives you a general, um, you know, taste of how cheap it can be to travel in these places. The other thing that I really like about Eastern Europe is that there are far fewer tourists in Eastern Europe than there are in the West. And... Now, that might be a bad thing for some people because I know some people like to go bicycle touring in order to meet other people. But if you're one of those people like me who kind of, who enjoys bicycle touring as a means of escaping from other people, then Eastern Europe is definitely a place to consider because there are far less tourists in that part of the world. The other thing um, that I really like and, and maybe my number one reason for going to Eastern Europe uh, maybe not all of Eastern Europe, but a lot of places in Eastern Europe is that it feels like you're stepping back in time. 
Um, there are so many places in Eastern Europe where it feels like the people are living at least in locations that look like they were a hundred years ago. Uh, Romania, for example, there are people um, still riding around on the streets in horses, with horses and wagons. Um, in, in many countries, you don't see that anymore, you know? So it's, it's just really cool to go to a place where it's like, whoa, that, that farmer right there just went to the market on a horse, you know? <laughs> like, that is cool. Um, and you don't see that a lot in, in Western Europe and, and in a whole lot of other places in the world. So um, that I, those are the three big reasons I think that are um, that you should at least consider a bike tour in Eastern Europe. But I also think the, if I can give a fourth reason, it's, the, it's that Eastern Europe, while, while it does sometimes feel like you're stepping back in time, like 100 years or more, um, Eastern Europe does have all of the modern conveniences that you would expect of Western Europe, really. Like all these countries have internet, they all have hotels, they all have got good restaurants. Uh, a lot of the locals speak English, especially the young people. So it's not quite as foreign as you might think it is. And um, I wouldn't let language barriers, for example, or the fact that it might be a little bit uh, less nice in some parts, um, hold you back from traveling to these parts of the world. Because I, I have found for myself that Eastern Europe is, is really like one of the most beautiful places in the world. And, and I think it's largely beautiful in so many places because it's less touched by the West than the West. <laughs> so um, anyways, those are reasons why I think you should at least consider a bike tour in Eastern Europe. Um, a lot of people want to go bicycle touring, but the number one complaint that I hear from people is that they don't have the money, right? That, that travel in general costs a lot of money. And so Eastern Europe allows you to travel to places um, on a budget. And so I'm going to give you some examples of like, like, for example, one of the number one places that people think about going bicycle touring in the world is the Netherlands. And people like to go bicycle touring in the Netherlands because the Netherlands is flat and there's a lot of bike paths. Um, that's awesome. But if you don't want to go traveling in the West and you want an alternative to the Netherlands, I would consider a bike tour in Estonia. Estonia is a very small country. It's, it's way up by Finland, kind of between Finland, Russia, and Latvia. And Estonia is one of these countries that you never hear about people going to practically from a tourist standpoint. But it is a really, really beautiful place and it's flat. So if you're looking for an alternative to the Netherlands, consider a trip to Estonia. Estonia also has like thousands of islands that um, are off of the coastline. And there are ferries that you can take with your bicycle very inexpensively over to these islands and, and ride your bike around the island, then jump on another ferry, go to another island and ride around there. So it's really, really beautiful. And there are hotels there, there are campgrounds. Um, the cycling infrastructure, there are bike paths in some parts, but there are also uh, sections where you may have to cycle on a highway with trucks and stuff. 
Um, but that's not that bad in my opinion, especially if you're used to cycling in the United States or Canada or something, for example, um, the roads in Estonia are very, very similar. So um, that's one example of how you can replace a Western country with an Eastern country. Another good example would be uh, Switzerland. Switzerland's one of the most expensive countries in the world, maybe the most expensive country in the world. Um, so if you want to go to a place like Switzerland where they have the big mountains and the scenery and good food, um, but you don't want to spend all that money, consider a bike tour in Romania, especially the Transylvania part of Romania. Romania is probably my favorite bicycle touring destination in the world. It's one of these secret places that no, nobody seems to know about. Nobody goes there as a tourist practically. Um, but I've been there three times on three different bike tours. I've probably spent about five total months in Romania and I freaking love it. It's so incredible. So um, there's another example of how you can replace a Western country like Switzerland with an Eastern country like Romania and see the place on a budget. Another example, maybe, maybe you're into food and you, and you want to eat food that's as good as Italy or France, something you would find in Italy or France but you want to do it on a budget, consider coming to Poland, where I am right now. Um, this city that I'm in, for example, Poznan, Poland, has hundreds of restaurants, and they're, and they're all very small usually, um, but they're so good. You, you pick any single one of them practically, and they're, they're amazing. There's a little, um, there's a curry restaurant right across the street from my apartment here, and uh, they give you curry and rice and a, like a tortilla and a, and a salad, all of that. And it costs like less than six U.S. dollars for the whole meal. And it's so good. It's like some of the best food ever. Um, there's, there's tons of vegan restaurants and vegetarian places. So, so good. So um, there's another example. If you're into food and you want to come to the, the East, Eastern Europe, consider coming to Poland. Finally, if you like the beaches, uh, maybe you like the, the, you know, laying in the sand and, and soaking up the sun, uh, but you don't want to go to Portugal or Spain, which is where a lot of people go in Western Europe for that sort of a thing, consider going to Croatia or Montenegro or, or even Bulgaria would be good. Um, but Croatia and Montenegro especially, I think are, are two really beautiful countries that are a little more touristy for, for certain, uh, especially during the summer months, but um, really cheap also. Uh, I, I actually rented an apartment. I, I rode my bike through Croatia at one point a couple years ago, and I rented an apartment in Croatia, which is a very easy thing to do, by the way. Pretty much every house in Croatia has like a room or an apartment or something attached to it that they rent out. Anyways, I rented to the place there and it cost me like $600 US dollars to, to live in Rome, uh, Croatia, like five minutes from the beach or, or less, two minutes from the beach, um, $600 for the entire month. And that included my lodging, my food, my entertainment, everything for $600 for the month in Croatia. Uh, Montenegro is another really, really beautiful country that almost nobody goes to. It's, it's hilly. Um, if you if you ride down the coast, it's perfectly flat in Montenegro, but if you go inland, it's it's very hilly. So um, be prepared for that. But the coastline itself is really beautiful. 
Um, not the greatest food, I don't think, in Montenegro, in my opinion, but um, as far as beaches and stuff are concerned, a really, really great place to go. So those are four examples now of different places in Eastern Europe that you can go to on a budget that are similar in some ways, at least, to what you might find in Western Europe, but are a whole lot cheaper. Now, those are just a few examples, but let me tell you about my three favorite countries. And I, I've already touched on these a little bit, but Romania is, is by far, I think, the like bicycle terrain secret place uh, that nobody seems to know about, but I want to convince everybody to go to, especially the Transylvania area of Romania. Um, like I said, I've been there three times. I've done several different routes across the country. And I just think Romania is a really special place because um, it's like stepping back in time. It's like Switzerland used to be, perhaps. Um, it's uh, cheap. It's very cheap. Uh, they're, the, they're, it, they're modern and old world at the same time. There's kind of a part of the world that's living in the past and part of the world that's way in the future. Um, I have friends in Romania that fly jet planes, for example, as a living, or they work in the computer industry. Romania, for example, has the second fastest internet in the world. Um, so there's a huge tech industry in Romania that a lot of people don't know about. Um, but yeah, Romania, great place. My second favorite place in Eastern Europe for bicycle terrain is Ukraine. Now there's a lot going on in Ukraine and Russia right now. Um, and I, I was actually in Ukraine. I was riding my bike across Ukraine during the uh, recent Crimean War um, that was there. So um, there, there are certainly some issues. But um, Ukraine is, is really like one of the most spectacular places that I've ever been in Eastern Europe. And I think it's so spectacular because it's so different than a lot of the other places in Eastern Europe. I mean, with, with, like I said, I've never been to Russia, but Ukraine is about as close to Russia as you can possibly get. Um, and it does have a lot of Russian influence. Um, I actually even rode my bicycle across this tiny sliver of uh, land called Transnistria, which is actually a Russian-controlled territory that's sandwiched between Moldova and Ukraine. And that was a really, really interesting experience. And I've talked about that in the past a little bit, so I won't talk about it now. But um, Ukraine is just really interesting because it, it's, it's if, especially if you're interested in the Russian Soviet uh, history and that sort of a thing, it's a really interesting place to go. Good food, very, very cheap. Uh, last time I was there, I stayed in a super nice hotel. This was, this was, of course, during the Crimean War, so there were no tourists anywhere in Ukraine, and a lot of the hotels that I stayed at were actually closed. Um, and, and I would find, like, a groundskeeper, go up to them and say, like, hey, I need a room, and they're like, the hotel's closed, but you can stay here if you want. And they just I give them, like, five bucks, and <laughs> that was my hotel for the night. But um, I stayed at a really nice hotel in one of the largest cities in Ukraine, and the hotel cost $13, 13 US dollars for the night. And the woman at the desk was like concerned that I like that I wouldn't have enough money to pay for it, perhaps. Um, maybe because of the way I looked or something. <laughs> but, um, 
but yeah, really nice room for $13 in Ukraine. And then finally, my, my last big, probably favorite and unknown place to go bicycle touring in Eastern Europe is Estonia. Um, like I mentioned before, it's a very flat country. It's very small, so you can cycle across the whole thing in a week if you want to, or even less. Um, but you could fly into Tallinn, which is the capital of Estonia, and do kind of a, a circular route um, through Estonia. You could hop over on the ferry and go up to Helsinki, Finland, if you wanted to, and continue up from there into Scandinavia. Uh, you could go down from Tallinn, Estonia, down into Latvia and Lithuania and Poland, um, which is kind of the route that I did. But uh, Estonia is really a kind of uh, undiscovered gem in Eastern Europe that a lot of people are not going to. And I'm very, very surprised because it's a flat country, like I said. Um, there are these beautiful islands that you can go out on. And there uh, is so much nearby that is really, really interesting and easy to access. So those are three places in Eastern Europe that um, I think you should think about. There are so many other places <laughs> that you could go, but um, those are just a few of my favorites. Um, I, I am going to open this up for Q&A, so I see you guys commenting and stuff. I just wanted to let you know that um, I will be answering all your questions. I just can't read the comments while I'm talking and like think and talk all at the same time. So let me just share one more thing with you, which is some of the popular bicycle routes in Eastern Europe. There are several bike routes in Eastern Europe. There, there are dozens and dozens and dozens actually, but I'm going to share four that I think are worth knowing about. The first of which is probably one of the most popular bicycle train routes, not just in Eastern Europe, but in all of Europe. And that is the Eurovelo 6 route, um, also sometimes referred to as the Danube River route. And this is a 4,400 kilometer bike route that goes from Western France all the way across Europe to Eastern Bulgaria. And this route, Eurovelo 6, uh, crosses through 10 different countries. Uh, it's mostly flat, and that is why it's so popular. Um, it, it, in this one route, 4,400 kilometers, you get to see two coastlines. You travel uh, along several different rivers. Um, you pass hundreds of castles, and the infrastructure, as far as bike paths and stuff, is really, really good. Um, you're not on bike paths the entire time, but for the most part, you're on really good bike paths and it's signed a lot of the way too, um, with these big Eurovelo six route signs. So it's pretty hard to get lost, especially if you have a map or a GPS of the route. Um, and I actually have cycled several different sections of this Eurovelo six. I've never done the whole thing from east to west or west to east, but I've done several different sections. And just this past month, I rode the section from Vienna, Austria, down to Bratislava, Slovakia, and then down into Hungary as well. So I'm going to be releasing a video from that bike tour soon, and you'll see me um, riding on the Eurovelo 6 route. Excuse me, I'm going to get some water really quick. Where did I put my water? <laughs> I had it here a second ago. 
Okay. Just use my water bottle from my bike. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's getting hot. Okay, so that's one bike route that you should really know about. And if you wanna learn more about the Eurovelo route or any of the routes that I'm about to mention, I've put a link down in the video description down below. So check out the links underneath this video. Um, the first one is the Eurovelo 6. The second one that I wanna talk about is the Prague to Vienna Greenway Tour or Greenway route. And this is the route that I just finished cycling this past month. It's a 450 kilometer bike route uh, from Prague in the Czech Republic down to Vienna in Austria. Now, now what's interesting about this particular route is that um, Austria, for example, is considered for the most part a part of Western Europe. So I haven't included that in my list of Eastern Europe. So this, this route is kind of touching on the border of Eastern and Western Europe. But um, what's funny is that Prague in the Czech Republic where this bike tour begins is actually further west than Vienna, Austria, where the bike tour ends. So, and, and Vienna is part of Western Europe and, the, and Prague is a part of Eastern Europe. So anyways, just a funny little thing, but um, this is a 450 kilometer route that can be done in one week, which is why it's really popular. Um, it's signed pretty much the entire way. It is a little hilly. Um, definitely, it was, it was actually quite a bit hillier than I thought it was going to be. Um, but it's a, it's a very beautiful ride. There's not a lot of cars. Um, you're riding on greenways. Greenway is like sometimes like a dirt road, sometimes a bike path, sometimes a small highway going through small villages, etc. Um, but the Czech Republic in general has really good signs for all of their bike routes. Um, so this is a really good ride that I would recommend if you have a like one week to do and and the other thing is you can continue if you if you have two weeks for example you could ride from Prague in the Czech Republic down to Vienna and, and do that the first week and then the second week you could continue from there um, to Bratislava in in, in uh, Slovakia and then continue down from there to Budapest in Hungary so you could do all of that in about two weeks on a bicycle really cool and once again the details for that route are down in the video description down below another popular route another popular route in Eastern Europe is the Iron Curtain route this is uh, Eurovelo 13 Eurovelo in case you guys don't know is uh, there are a bunch of long-distance cycling routes in Europe and they're called the Eurovelo routes. So they're all numbered. And so I've already told you about Eurovelo 6, the Danube River route, but Eurovelo 13 is one of the most popular ones in Eastern Europe. And it's actually the longest Eurovelo route in all of Europe. It's 10,400 kilometers in length. It's very, very long and it would take you several months to complete the entire thing. This long distance bicycle train route crosses through 20 European countries, if you can believe that. And it follows the approximate route of the Iron Curtain. Um, if you don't know what the Iron Curtain is, I'm not gonna talk too much about that right now because that's like a whole history lesson in and of itself, but it's basically the route that divides Eastern and Western Europe. 
Um, but that's an incredible uh, cycling route uh, of which I, again, have done several sections, but I've never done the entire thing. Um, but like if you were to ride your bike, for example, through Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, a lot of people follow the Iron Curtain route, which is a very good route to follow. Finally, the fourth and final uh, bike route that I think you should consider if you ever come to Eastern Europe for a bike tour is the Green Velo route in Poland. I'm in Poland right now. The Green Velo route is actually a relatively new bicycle uh, path. It's 2,000 kilometers long. It's actually a little shorter than that, but there's like a 300 kilometer extension that you can do. Um, so we'll call it 2,000 kilometers. And um, of that 2,000 kilometers, about 300 kilometers is on dedicated bike paths. So you won't have to deal with cars and trucks and all that kind of stuff, 300 kilometers. The rest of it is kind of on unpaved roads. Uh, I think there's about 150 kilometers of unpaved roads, like dirt roads, gravel roads, and that sort of thing. And then the rest is on paved uh, roads, smaller paved backcountry roads, towns, and stuff like that. Also on this green velo route, which is really incredible, they've they've put up 230 uh, cyclist service points along the route, and and these are basically just areas with like bike racks and some, uh, tools and benches and sheds, uh, trash cans and information boards about things to do along the route. So there's 230 of those all along the route. And what's even more incredible about the Green Velo route in Poland is, is like I said, it's a 2,000 kilometer route, but off of this route, if you were to deviate from the route, there, there's an additional 10,000 kilometers of connected bicycle paths that go off in different directions all across Poland. So um, the Green Velo route, if you wanted to spend like a year in Poland, <laughs> you probably still couldn't bike every single trail that is here. Um, but that is definitely uh, a trail to look into. If you, if you have like a month to travel across Eastern Europe and you're looking for a really amazing bike tour to do, the Green Velo route would be one to consider for sure. So those are four uh, bicycle terrain routes, long distance bicycle terrain routes that you um, I should consider if you ever come bike terrain in Europe. And with that, that's kind of the final thing that I wanted to talk about in Eastern Europe, uh, talk about here today about Eastern Europe. I wanted to spend most of my time today talking to you guys and answering any questions that you have. So I'm flipping over now to YouTube and I'm looking at your guys' comments. So if you have any questions for me about anything that I've just said, or if you just have a general question about bicycle touring or world travel or camping or uh, safety or money or anything um, like that, leave a comment right now. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you guys on YouTube and I'm also looking at you guys on Facebook here. Um, let me know if you have any questions and I will do my best to answer them now. I'm kind of re skimming through the comments. Uh, Matt has a good question. He says, Darren, um, it's, it's always fun to navigate with maps, get lost, get found, et cetera. But what is your perspective on navigation devices versus smartphone navigation? So that's a very good question because bicycle train has actually changed a lot in the recent, in like the last 10 years. 
Um, it used to be that everybody that went on a bicycle tour was carrying paper maps with them. And, that, and that's how I got started when I first started bicycle touring. We didn't have smartphones or GPSs um, even, you know, just a decade or, or two ago. So everybody navigated with paper maps. And that was good in a way, um, but, but the technology has advanced to where you can really be very, very detailed about the routes and turns that you're gonna be following. And that's what GPSs and, and smartphones and stuff allow you to do. Whereas a paper map usually was not quite as detailed unless you were carrying a, a whole lot of paper maps, detailed paper maps. Um, the other, the good thing about paper maps is they require no batteries. And so the disadvantage to modern bicycle travel now is that you need some way to constantly power whichever device you choose to use, whether it's a, G, a dedicated GPS device or uh, your smartphone. And, and so that really is an issue for, for a lot of people. Um, for me, I, I have played with the um, various GPS devices. I had a Garmin at one point that I was using. Um, I, I used a Garmin, for example, on my 2009 bike tour across Eastern Europe. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm trying to think about when exactly I made the switch. I think it was 2013, 2014. I started navigating with my smartphone. And I've actually talked quite a bit on BicycleTrainPro.com um, and in some of my other videos about how exactly I navigate. Um, I, I actually have several videos inside my video training course about how to navigate with a smartphone and how to map out your route using Google Maps and things like that. Um, so if you're interested in watching those videos, you can find them at BicycleTrainPro.com forward slash video. Um, whole bunch of videos in there about navigation. But, but Matt's question is, you know, what do I think is better? Personally, um, I, I, I enjoy navigating with my smartphone. Every smartphone now nowadays has a GPS built into it. So, and, and there are free apps that you can use. I use this one called maps.me. I've been using that probably for the last five years or so. It's a free offline uh, navigation app and it allows me to map out all of my bike tours in advance I can upload routes to it um, like all of these Eurovelo routes that I just mentioned you can download the GPS files upload them to your smartphone have it there you don't need internet access um, using one of these free offline apps and and you can navigate very very easily using just your smartphone once you get out on the road um, there are a bunch of other applications. I use maps.me, but there, there are other ones, um, several other ones, in fact. And, um, yeah, they allow you to navigate perfectly fine. I, I think that for most people, at least, there's no need to go out and purchase a, a separate GPS device. I just don't think there's a need for that anymore. Um, there are some advantages perhaps to having that, that extra device, especially if you want to track things like your cadence or something that's connected to a cadence counter on your bicycle. But um, for most people, I think, who already have a smartphone, there's probably no need to go out and buy another device for several hundred dollars just to navigate. I would, I would just use your phone. So that's, that's my short answer. Um, Okay, I'm looking at other questions that you guys have. Ah, 
Cat Steel says, so I want to try a shorter tour, but don't want to buy panniers, tent, bag, etc. How do I try it without investing a ton of money? That's a good question. Okay, so if you don't, well, first of all, let me let me start by saying that a lot of people already have a lot of the things that they need to go bicycle touring. So like the, the main thing you need is a bicycle, right? So if you don't have a bicycle, um, that's probably the first thing you need to get a bike. You could even borrow a bike from somebody if you, if you don't have one for your very first bike tour. Um, but, um, actually that's what I did on my first bike tour. I didn't have a bike. I borrowed my dad's bicycle and used his, but, um, you could do something very similar. Ask your neighbor or friend if, if they have a bike they aren't using. Um, the, the, the second thing that you probably need is a, is camping gear and, and you don't necessarily need camping gear. Actually, a bike tour doesn't necessarily have to involve camping. You could just ride your bike to a hotel that's 50 miles down the road, stay at the hotel and then come back home the following day. So that's a that's an easy way to get started with bicycle training without buying a whole bunch of gear. But if you do wanna camp, most people have some kind of camping gear that they can use. It might not be the smallest, lightest camping gear in the whole world. And I know that when I did my first bike tour, um, I didn't have the smallest or lightest tent or sleeping pad or sleeping bag but I used what I had, you know what I mean? And it worked, it wasn't the greatest, but it worked. And over the years, as I got more and more into bicycle touring, I, I bought smaller and lighter gear. And now 18 years later, I have like some of the smallest, lightest camping gear that money can buy. But, but I didn't go out and buy that on my very first bike tour. Um, I only did that after I realized that I wanted to take my bicycle touring seriously. So um, that's, that's my second suggestion is like you might already have a lot of the stuff that you need for bicycle touring. And if you don't have that stuff, the basic stuff like a tent, sleeping bag, and sleeping mat, there's probably somebody you know that has those things and isn't using them. Like that kind of stuff in general people buy and they, put it in, they use it like one or two times, they put it in a closet and they never use it again. So there's probably somebody you know you know, post on Facebook or, or, you know, send a message to all your friends saying, hey, does anybody have some camping gear that I could use? I want to do a little bike trip and I'll return it to you in like a week. Um, that's a good way to get your hands on the gear um, without actually going out and spending any money. Now, as far as um, the panniers or, or a trailer or the, the bike packing bags that you might need to carry all that stuff, now that's a little bit harder um, to figure out because uh, you can't really just like make some, most people just can't like make something to carry all that stuff on their bicycle. And this is where actually like a lot of new newbie bicycle tourists make, make a big mistake I think, is that like, like a lot of people have a backpack of some kind. And so they think, hmm, I don't want to go bicycle touring, but I don't have panniers and I don't have a trailer and I, I don't have any good way to carry all my stuff. So I'll just wear a big, heavy backpack full of everything I need for my trip. And that sounds like a good idea until you're about five minutes into your trip and everything you're carrying is on your back and it's heavy and it, it's painful and it hurts and you're hot and you're sweaty. 
Um, that is actually how a lot of first-time bicycle tourists ruin their first bike tour. So I wouldn't recommend necessarily um, using a backpack unless it's very, very light and there's like nothing in it practically. Uh, like people ride with these camel packs that just have water in them, you know, that's okay, that's fine. But you don't want to be carrying 50 pounds or, or you know, 30 kilos of gear on your back. That, that's just a, a recipe for disaster. And, and I don't recommend you do that. But if you're new to bicycle terrain and you can get your hands on um, a bike, if you, you know, maybe you already have one. So you got the bike, then you, you get the camping gear from friends, family members, loved ones, coworkers, wherever. So that's basically free. If you want to make an investment in your bicycle tour, I would, I would probably suggest that one of the first things you do is buy a rear, a rear bike rack for your bicycle. So you put a rack, a metal rack on the back of your bicycle and you invest in a single set of bicycle panniers. Panniers are these backpack sized bags that attach to the sides of your bicycle. And then you put all your stuff inside those panniers or on the top of your rear bicycle rack. And with, with just those two things, that rear metal rack and two pannier bags, one on each side of your bicycle, you can you can do an, uh, some amazing bike tours and i actually have um, a lightweight bike tour packing list up on bicycle touring pro right now just go there and type in lightweight packing list um, and that packing list shows you how to conduct a lightweight inexpensive bicycle tour uh, with basically those two things just a rear rack and two rear panniers so um, i would recommend you check that out but yeah that's kind of what you need, the very basics, the essentials, um, in order to get started. So that's what I'd recommend. Um, Chris Kim says, Darren, what do you do when you're wild camping and there's no bathrooms around? Can you provide the logistics? <laughs> yes, I can answer that pretty easily, actually. And it obviously depends on the situation and where you are in the world. But if you are out in the forest, for example, um, pretty much everywhere is a bathroom. <laughs> That's the short answer. Maybe going number one is easy to explain, but number two is a little bit more difficult. I basically usually just dig a quick hole with like a rock or a stick or something. And then I go in the hole and um, use toilet paper. That's another tip that I talk about inside my book, The Bicycle Train Blueprint. You always want to be bicycle train with like at least a half roll of toilet paper at all times, just in case. Um, so you have a half roll of toilet paper with you. You use that, you put it in the hole, and then you cover it up uh, using sticks or a rock or something, push the dirt back over it and, and bury it. And that's it. That's how you poop in the woods. Obviously, this is a little bit more difficult when you're in a place where maybe there's people around or something. Um, and I don't know how exactly to explain that to you, but I guess my biggest tip is don't get caught with your pants down. <laughs> I've actually, um, this is just a silly story, but I uh, was in Sweden, not last year, but the year before that actually, and I was, on, I was coming around a trail and 
I saw somebody, I heard him first. I heard somebody up the trail first, but I just continued going. And then I could see somebody standing by a tree. And as I got closer, I realized the guy, it was a guy and he had his, he was facing me, but he had his pants down and he was pooping in the woods, just right there, right on the side of the trail. Um, and, and he saw me and I saw him and I saw everything. And um, it was embarrassing for us both, for sure. But there's a tip as well. It's like you, when, you, when you are going to the bathroom, you have to think about the fact that there could be people around, even if it doesn't seem like there are. So be very, very careful, um, especially when you're in like wooded places, for example. There can be hunters and stuff up in these hunting perches that you see a lot of times. And they're just sitting there like watching and you're down below like doing your thing. So keep an eye out for those sorts of things. Um, there could be other campers in the area or, 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 you know, moms out walking their kids or walking the dog or something like that. So, um, just some things to keep in mind when you're doing your business outside. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but, um, yeah. Uh, Ruhan says, have you made a tour in China? Uh, I have been to China, but I've never done a bicycle tour in China. I would, I, it's actually one of the places that I really want to go. Um, I, I really want to go to Eastern China and, and also like the Mongolia area. That really interests me a lot. Um, Graham Perkins. Hey, Graham. Um, Graham says, have you ever had your bike damaged by air travel? And the, the big answer is no. Um, I've, I've flown with my bicycle uh, hundreds of times, hundreds of times now, and maybe not hundreds, but a hundred times at least. And um, I've never had anything seriously bad happen to my bicycle. They have damaged the box or the suitcase that the bicycle was in, like they were opening it up really quick and then they damaged it, but they haven't actually damaged the bike inside. The only thing that I have really had uh, an issue with when it comes to air travel and damage is the spokes. Um, you got to be careful when you're putting your bike in a bike box and preparing it for air travel, uh, not to have anything in between the spokes because the, the wheels can move around inside the box and things in there can hit the spokes and bend them. So I have uh, had an issue in the past where some of the boat, the spokes were spent. Uh, I can't talk. Some of the spokes were bent <laughs> uh, during the, during air travel, but I was able to fix that myself because I had a spoke wrench and, and a couple spare spokes um, with me, thank goodness. And I knew how to do that. But um, that's really the only thing that I have ever personally had go wrong. I have heard horror stories, however, from other people that have had their frame completely bent or the bicycle, the wheels completely bent. Um, and I'm not sure exactly whose fault that was. It could have been the fault of the airline for sure, or it could have been the fault of the person that packed the bicycle. You know, um, you, it's hard to say, but um, for the most part, I think airlines are pretty good when it comes to the bike packing, you know, taking care of your bike and stuff. But, but yeah, it's a little tough. I, I, I do have several videos up here on YouTube about how to pack your bicycle for air travel. So if you're one of those people who is wanting to fly with your bicycle in the future, 
um, yeah, check out check out those videos. I, I highly recommend it. There's details on everything you need to know about how to pack your bicycle for an airplane. Chad says, "Would you take your mountain bike to Europe?" Uh, yeah, I mean there there are lots of places actually in Europe that would be very good for for mountain biking. Uh, Romania would be a good one. Uh, Sweden, Norway. There's so many good places actually. It just depends on the type of bike tour that you're wanting to do. You know, obviously. Europe, there's a lot of road riding. So Europe is kind of a road riding based place. Um, whereas maybe if you want to do mountain biking, going to a place like South Africa, for example, would be a better destination than say Europe. Um, I did a epic two week long mountain bike tour in South Africa a couple of years ago. And it was amazing. Um, some of the best cycling I've ever done in the whole world. So yes, you could use a mountain bike in Europe um, but honestly, based off of my experiences cycling in Europe, I think Europe is much more of a road-based uh, destination. Uh, Karia Goodwin says, at a leisurely pace, how far would you plan for a three-month trip? That's a good question, and um, I'll try to answer that in both miles and kilometers because I know I have we have people here from countries where they use miles and, and uh, people here from countries that use kilometers. I generally tell people that are like new to bicycle touring, that, but that want to you know, do a pretty good pace, but not like totally kill themselves by pushing themselves too hard. That, that usually you can cover about 1,000 miles. That's about 1,600 kilometers in a month. And you could up that a little bit. Like, for example, you, you might be able to do 1,600 to 2,000 kilometers in a month at a pretty good pace. Um, but for the average person, I'd say somewhere around there is good because when you, when you do a month-long bike tour or a three-month-long bike tour, as like you're asking, you, you don't want to necessarily be riding your bicycle every day you do want to take some breaks. So um, yeah, that, that kind of gives you an idea. Like a lot of people, for example, ride their bicycle across America and that's a three to 4,000 kilometer ride depending on which route you take. So most people take about three months to do that sort of a trip, you know, 3,000 miles, three months. Now there are people that do it in two months. There are people that do it way faster than that. Um, and there are people that do it way longer than that. But for most people, uh, through, yeah, a thousand miles or about 1,600, 1,800 kilometers is probably what you're going to want to do in a one month period. Um, uh, here's a good question. Phuket77 says Why do a lot of professional touring uh, bike riders? ride with a hard leather saddle than something that's quite soft. Why don't they use something soft? And uh, again, I talk about this on my website and also in my book, The Bicycle Touring Blueprint, but picking a saddle for your bicycle, the saddle is the seat, the thing you sit on, uh, is, is, is kind of like picking a mattress for your, your bed at home. You want something, you want a saddle that is firm at its base, 
but soft and cushy at the surface. Um, you don't you don't want something that's that's super saggy, uh, so that when you sit on it, you fall into it. Kind of that sounds good for your couch, for example, at home, but it's not actually good on a bicycle. And the reason it's not good is because if your saddle was super soft, and there are saddles out there that are super cushy, um, the the disadvantage to that type of saddle is that. Uh, while it is super cushy and very soft at first, when you sit on that saddle for eight hours in a day and you sit on that same saddle for 30 days straight, that cushy saddle moves around a whole lot. And it, it also generates a lot of heat. And those are two things that you do not want when you're a bicycle touring. You do not want a, a saddle that moves around a lot because that will cause agitation to your butt and crotch area. Um, this is how you get saddle sores. And so if, you, if you're experiencing saddle sores um, when you're riding your bicycle, it might just be that your, your seat is too soft or that your shorts that you're wearing are too soft. A lot of people have these um, you know, super padded shorts, which do feel comfortable when you first start riding your bike. They can be comfortable for the first hour or two. But when you continue to ride in those, they can really agitate your nether regions and um, you can really get yourself into a lot of trouble and so that is why um, so many bicycle tourists and bike riders in general uh, ride with what most people would consider a very hard seat but it's sh i uh, i should say that most bike saddles are, are are pretty firm most good bike saddles are pretty firm when you press on them they feel hard but there is some give uh, at the surface. And that's very important. You don't want a bike seat that's just like pure plastic when you push into it, you know. Um, you want a saddle that does have a little bit of give at its surface and to absorb vibrations from the road and, and any movements that you have between uh, your butt cheeks and, and the saddle itself. Um, so you do want a little bit of cushion there. I hope that answers your question. But um, if you go to bicycletrainpro.com, and in the search bar, you type in, why does my butt hurt when I ride my bicycle? I have a really big, long article that talks a whole lot more about bicycle seats and saddles. and also gives you some suggestions on things that you can do if you are experiencing pain in the butt while you're riding your bicycle. A um, bunch of things about, you know, changing the saddle, of course, but also like things about changing the shorts that you're riding in or the underwear you're wearing or the position of the seat um, is also very important. So I would definitely check out that article. Once again, you can go to bicycleturnpro.com. Uh, in the search bar, just type in, why does my butt hurt? And, and you'll find the article. Why does my butt hurt when I ride my bicycle? Um, another question from Maxim. I'm sorry, I totally butchering your name. Maxim Bezbravdov. He says, uh, hi, any plans for Iceland? No, <laughs> because I've been to Iceland. Um, I, I did a 25-day bike tour in Iceland, I think back in 2012, so it's been quite a while. But that was an amazing trip, and I actually have a video from that trip if you want to check it out. Um, just type in Bicycle Touring Pro in Iceland here on YouTube, for example, and you'll find there's just one video from the trip. Um, but uh, 
yeah, check it out. It, it was an amazing adventure. I really enjoyed it, and I would totally go back to Iceland in the future if, if I had the opportunity. Um, that's another really great uh, bicycle touring destination. I didn't include that in my talk today because that's in Western Europe, um, not in Eastern Europe. But uh, again, another great place for bicycle touring. Okay, so this is a, probably one of the most common questions that I get uh, from anybody who's new to bicycle touring or traveling with their bicycle. And that is, Jan is asking, how do you lock your bike to your tent? or or, or when you go in to get your groceries, how do you lock up your bicycle? So those are two different questions, really, somewhat related, but I can answer um, them both. Let's talk about going into the supermarket with your bicycle uh, and all the stuff on it. You know, what do you do? Well, obviously, you want to have a good bike lock, and I recommend using a cabled uh, bike lock instead of one of those big heavy U-lock things. Um, if you want to carry one of those, that's fine as well, but I generally opt for a smaller, lighter uh, cable lock just because it's smaller and lighter and easier to use on a bike tour. Um, I also like the cable locks because I can not only lock up the bicycle to some nearby object, a bike uh, rack or street sign or whatever, but um, I can run the cable through the loop on my pannier bags. The, um, I don't have one of my pannier bags in front of me, but there are loops on the outside of most pannier bags. Just they're mesh loops, you know, like uh, fabric loops, basically. Um, and I run the cable lock through these fabric loops on the panniers when I'm locking up my bicycle. So somebody, yes, could come along and cut the fabric off of my pannier bags and steal them but most people probably aren't gonna do that. So it's just like one other thing that you can do to keep your bicycle safe. So that's one thing that you can do is if you're using a cable lock, you can lock your panniers to your bicycle. Um, it's not gonna totally prevent every theft, but it's certainly something that you can do. Um, the other thing that I think about a lot when I'm locking up my bicycle is where the bicycle is locked up. A lot of supermarkets, for example, have bike racks, but they're located like on the side, on like the sketchy side of the building or something, or like, you know, in some place where it's not good to park your bicycle. So oftentimes I totally ignore where the bike racks are and I park my bike where I think it's going to be safest. And, and sometimes I will even park my bicycle across the street from the supermarket because like, imagine this, like a lot of supermarkets have a big glass wall at the front of the, the supermarket and, and, and they will want you to like park your bike on the side of the supermarket where when, once you go inside the supermarket and you look out that big glass wall out to the front of the building, you can't see your bicycle, right? I like to be able to see the bicycle when I'm inside the supermarket. I go down the aisle, I come back, I look outside, okay, there's my bike, it's still good, you know, and I mean, oh, there's nobody standing next to it or whatever. And then I go down another aisle and I shop for a little bit and then I look outside the, the supermarket again. Okay, yeah, the bike's still there, everything looks good, you know, and then I go outside. So um, in some instances, you can do this where you can park your bicycle in a place that's visible from inside the store. 
Um, that's, a, that's a really big tip, and, and that's something that's obviously not going to work in every situation. But if you can think about that when you pull up to the supermarket and think, okay, hmm, where could I put my bike that I'm going to be able to see it from inside the, uh, inside the store? Um, what else? What else? There, most of the time, honestly, um, and this depends on where you are in the world and what it's like or whatever, but um, I will just lock up my bike the way I've described, lock my panniers up using the cable lock. And then I go inside and hope for the best. I bring, I bring my handlebar bag, which is the small bag that goes on my handlebars. And I have my wallet and my passport and my camera and all my really ex expensive, important stuff in that handlebar bag with me. So I bring that into the store. But all the other stuff that's on my bike, camping gear, clothing, toiletries, food, that stuff, if somebody steals it, in all honesty, it's not the end of the world, right? The, you know, losing your passport or your wallet, that's the end of the world. So um, most of the time I bring in the important stuff and I just hope for the best and, and hope that no one will steal my stinky clothes off of my bicycle. Um, but if you're really concerned, uh, what you can do in some instances is find somebody from the supermarket and ask them if they have a safe place that you can park your bicycle. Sometimes there's there's a little space near the door where you can bring in your bike. Sometimes there's like a place in the back where they, you can bring in your bike and just park it while you're shopping. So that is an option, but I wouldn't recommend doing that every time or something. And I wouldn't recommend doing that very often because um, again, one of the things that I talk about inside the bicycle train blueprint is, is the fact that everything that you do on a bike tour affects other bicycle tourists in the future. And if supermarkets, uh, every single time a bike tourist comes up that, you know, they're bringing their bike inside and stuff, it kind of leaves a bad taste in their mouth and they may get to the point where they don't want to deal with bicyclists anymore. So um, you have to keep that in mind. Sometimes, you know, you, you got to do what's best for you in the situation, but you also have to think about how your actions are affecting other bicycle tourists in the future, if that makes any sense. You just don't want to do something that's going to piss off people uh, who run these stores because every time they see another one of you riding that specific type of bicycle, they might get upset or whatever, you know. Now, locking up your bicycle uh, to a tent is a totally different thing because generally when you're camping, you're, you're somewhere nearby, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe you want to go somewhere and maybe you want to set up camp and then go off on a hike or something in the evening. In that situation, again, uh, you, you probably can't bring your bicycle inside the tent. Most people aren't traveling with tents that are big enough to do that. Um, and even if you had a tent that was that big, you might not want to bring your bike inside, but, um, generally you lock the bicycle to a tree, a fence post, something like that. And, and hope for the best. Again, um, it depends where you're camping. If you're in a campground with hundreds of people around, that's actually probably more risky of your bike being stolen than say out in the forest in the middle of Sweden with no one around. Um, because in Sweden, no one's probably going to come along and see your bicycle locked to that tree. But um, again, it's very situational. Um, but yeah, you lock up your bike 
and uh, hope for the best in most instances. If you have nothing to lock your bicycle to, uh, which is something that does happen. For example, I, we were talking about Iceland just a moment ago. Iceland doesn't have a lot of trees. Um, and so when you camp, uh, oftentimes there's nothing around except dirt and rocks and moss. And so what do you lock your bicycle to if you want to leave your tent? Well, you lock your bicycle to the tent itself. And so once again, this is why I like having a cable uh, bike lock is because you can run that cable through the tent poles or through the fabric on your tent and, and then back through your bicycle frame. And, and then you lay your bicycle basically on the ground right next to your tent. Um, and that way, if someone were to come along and try to take your bicycle, they would have to detach it from your tent in some way by cutting the tent or, or removing the tent entirely from the ground. It's taking both your tent and the bicycle with them is pretty hard to do. And most people wouldn't go through all that effort. But um, that's kind of a brief overview of how you do that. And I actually have another article on Bicycle Train Pro um, called something like, what do you do if you, uh, uh, what's it called? How to lock up your bicycle when you have nothing to lock it to or something like that. So um, you can see how I've locked up my bicycle uh, to my tent in that article. There's some pictures and stuff there if you want to check that out. Okay, guys, just a few more questions. Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm reading your comments here. Hi, Darren. Uh, what do you eat on a bike shelf, and what do you cook, or do you go out eating? Uh, good question, and the answer is, yeah, it depends. It depends on where you are and also what your budget is and also just how you want your bike trip to go. There are a whole bunch of different ways to bicycle tour. Some people eat out at fancy five-star restaurants every single night after a long day of cycling. Um, you know, you can, you've seen me on some of my videos, perhaps go on guided or self-guided bike tours where I'm eating in a hotel in the morning, I'm packing a lunch perhaps, uh, in the afternoon. And then in the evening, I'm eating at, at a restaurant or a hotel. So that's one way to do it. Um, on the flip side, you could prepare all of your meals yourself, shopping at supermarkets or local markets that you find along the way getting all the ingredients you need and then cooking your own food using a, a camp stove or something. So you could do it that way too, or you could do a combination of the two, which is how I did it recently on my uh, recently completed bike tour across Eastern Europe. I, I was carrying a camp stove with me. So some nights I was cooking my own food and other nights I go out to a restaurant and have food there. And honestly, I think that's a good way to do it. I think um, relying too much on the camp stove can be a little like demoralizing, you know? It's, it, oh no, not another meal on the camp stove, you know what I mean? Um, so I, I would encourage you if you do carry a camp stove to not rely on it like 100%, but to use it maybe 75% of the time or 50% of the time and then the other days use um, the restaurants or, or other means of getting a meal once you get out on the road. Um, there's actually been a lot of bike tours that I've done in the past where I've met strangers on the road who then invite me over for meals 
uh, lunch or dinner or whatever, breakfast sometimes, um, and I'm able to get food that way, uh, having other people prepare the food for me. So that's a good way, too, of discovering foods, especially like local foods that you might not um, find at a, at a local restaurant or in the supermarket. You know, when you, when you go on a bike tour and you shop at supermarkets, you're probably going to try to prepare meals that are similar to what you create at home. And that's fine. But if you're, if you're going bicycle touring, part of the experience for a lot of people is discovering new cultures and eating new foods and that sort of thing. And that's how, that's why eating out at restaurants or, or getting served local dishes from local people it, uh, can actually be a really good way to get your meals on the road uh, because you're going to be introduced to foods um, that you wouldn't necessarily cook for yourself. So um, that's a very brief answer to your question, and I hope that helps a little bit. Um, Ron, I, Ron M. says, how's your health? Thank you, Ron, for asking. Um, I appreciate it. Um, for those of you who don't know, I was diagnosed with uh, testicular cancer about two and a half years ago. And I've basically been recovering from that ever since. Um, it, it was certainly not a fun experience to go through, I'll tell you that. And the fact that it was testicular cancer really concerned me um, when it went down because I thought perhaps that my cancer had something to do with my bike riding. But I have a, a series of doctors in several different fields now that I've spoken with and about this at great length and pretty much all of them have said there's no known there's no known correlation between cycling and testicular cancer and the fact that you got testicular cancer in the same way that Lance Armstrong perhaps got testicular cancer um, does not have anything as far as we know to do with you riding a bicycle and pretty much every one of my doctors said the exact same thing and to be honest if any one of my doctors said, you know, perhaps maybe you shouldn't ride a bicycle anymore, I would quit, honestly, um, like that. But they all, they all said, to be completely honest, like um, the bike riding probably helped you because you're exercising so much, you're in such good shape. Um, all of that probably helped so that when you did get cancer, um, it didn't spread to other parts of my body and it didn't grow super fast and all that sort of stuff. So um, my nutritionist and all my other doctors have basically said, you know, you, you did the right thing by riding a bicycle and you should probably continue to ride a bicycle. Anyways, um, it's been two and a half years since that all went down and to be completely honest, I'm still kind of dealing with some stuff from that. I still have to go every three months and get tested to make sure that cancer hasn't returned or spread to other parts of my body. Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, uh, sorry. 
Um, <laughs> I'm trying to talk, but I can't. Uh, yeah, it hasn't been fun. <laughs> and I, the, the thing, I th the best thing I think I have done actually since this all went down is that I've continued to bike tour because it's, it's given me something to do to, to, uh, to focus on. Um, it gave me a, a goal or a target to work towards um, because, sorry, when this all went down, yeah, um, I really, you, you realize what's important, you know what I mean? And for me, I just was thinking back on my 30 years on the, on this planet. And I was just thinking like these bike tours that I've done, um, are like some of the best things I've ever done. And and I, I want to do more of them. And uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I want to do more of them. And and so when I when I did get cancer, I had I had actually um, already purchased a plane ticket to South America. I was planning to do a three month long bike tour in Colombia and Ecuador. I'd already bought the plane ticket and everything, and I had to cancel that whole trip as soon the moment I found out I had cancer because I was supposed to leave in like a month or something. And my doctor said. There's no way you're going to be okay in a month. So I canceled that trip, and I basically, for the first five months of having cancer, did not leave the house except for to go to my doctor visits. Um, but I set a goal of going on a bike trip five months from the, the date of my surgery. And um, five months after my surgery, after five months after not having ridden a bicycle <laughs> for five months, um, I jumped on a, on a plane and flew to Europe and, and I did a three month long bike tour in Europe. Um, you know, five months after ha having cancer and going through all that. Um, and it was like the best thing I ever did because it got my mind off of my situation basically. And I was able to just kind of focus on what I was doing, uh, which was riding my bike and trying to get to the next destination. And, um, sorry. That's like one of the things I think that's so good about bicycle touring, um, that, that one of the things I like so much about bike touring is that it gives you a goal. Um, and it's a very obvious goal because um, a lot of things in life are not so obvious, you know? Um, sometimes, like with work, for example, like maybe you have an idea of where you want to go with work, where you want, you know, a, a status that you want to get to it in your career, but it's not so obvious, like the steps that you need to take in order to get there. Um, but with bike train, it, it, it's kind of nice because every day it's, it's 
it may be not obvious which roads you need to take to get to your destination on a you know on a day-to-day basis you kind of figure that out as you go along a lot of the ways but every day as as you continue to bike tour you can look back on a map and say wow look at look at how much progress i've made and and it's very obvious to see how far you've come as the days continue to rack up you can look back and say oh wow look at how far i've gone in three days look at how far i've gone in seven days look at how far i've gone in 30 days um, and it's very obvious to see your progress whereas in your career for example it can sometimes not be so obvious if you're even progressing in the right direction at all so for me getting out on that bike tour and continuing and having an obvious goal that I was going towards um, was like one of the best things for me um, and continues to be one of the best things for me. So anyways, um, thanks for asking. <laughs> I'm sorry I was, I got caught up there. I, I've, um, I've been pretty unemotional about this whole situation recently, but I, I don't know, for whatever reason, it kind of got me there. I think, I think it got to me in part because every three months I have to get retested, and my, um, I, I've, I have another test coming up soon, and it, I get worried when there, when I have these tests coming up, because your whole life can just change like that if if it shows something bad. So, anyways. Um, let's change the subject, shall we? Uh, <laughs> uh, do, 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 do. Anyway, I'm seeing all your nice comments. Thank you so much, everyone. I'm just reading all your comments now. <laughs> There's no questions. It's just nice comments. That's funny. Um, anyways, um, someone asked, did I give up my plans of coming to Switzerland this year? I, I had made an announcement earlier in the year that I was going to Switzerland. I was going to participate in the Bike Switzerland uh, light tour. But I, I, I did make another announcement, and I guess some people didn't see it, that uh, I wasn't able to do that trip. The, um, Bike Switzerland informed me that they weren't 100% sure that the trip was going to take place, and I, and I haven't found out if it actually did take place or not. But um, they said we weren't 100% sure. And so I said, well, if you're not 100% sure, I don't want to uh, commit to doing that trip. And so um, I, I am not going to Switzerland this year. But I do hope to go come back at some other point. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. George says advice um, on an Anchorage to San Diego trip. So riding from Alaska all the way to Mexico. Um, that's a route that I've done a vast majority of, and I can tell you it's a very good bicycle terrain route, and it may be one of the best bicycle terrain routes in all of North America. 
Um, what advice do I have for that particular route? Have fun, watch out for cars. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Um, the, the Adventure Cycling Association has the entire Pacific coast of that route mapped out. The rest of it is kind of easy to figure out. Um, what advice do I have for you though? Yeah, um, I guess my main advice would be, cause I just recently completed another trip uh, in Northern California on the coastline. And, and one of the things that I can say about the California coastline, especially at California, Oregon, Washington, that whole coastline is it, it's really beautiful in parts, but there's a lot of traffic in some parts as well. So just be careful out there. Um, I, feel, I feel like the traffic has increased quite a bit since I did my first bike tour down the California coastline. And maybe that's all in my mind, but it did, it, the last two times that I've cycled the Pacific coast, um, it seems like the traffic has gotten worse each and every time. So just be careful. Um, William says, how do you keep your electronics charged while you're on a bicycle tour or bill? Um, that's a good question as well, because more and more bicycle tourists are traveling with electronic devices, smartphones, cameras, drones. Uh, but I have a drone. Many other bike tourists are now carrying drones. There's a whole bunch of electronic GPS devices and things like that, smart devices. People are wearing, you know, the Fitbits and things. You got to keep those charged too. So how do you keep all that stuff charged? Well, the, the, the most obvious way is to stay in a hotel or a campground every night or every other night or something like that and use those campgrounds to charge your devices. You can also, I'm going to grab something over here. Oh, over here. But this is a this is a power bank, and this is basically just a big battery that I carry with me on my bicycle tours. And I'm not. This one is made by Anker. Anker. A N K E R. I don't know if you can see that, but um, and it's a big freaking battery, and it it can charge three different devices via USB all at the same time. And so what you do is you charge this battery up. Uh, when you're at home or whatever, or in a campground or a hotel. And then once you get out on the road, you plug in your smartphone or, or your drone or your bike lights, USB bike lights or flashlight or whatever you have with you, Fitbit, into this end. And then you can charge your devices without having to plug any of your electronics into uh, an outlet in the wall. So this is all that I used on my recently uh, recently completed trip across Eastern Europe. Um, this is how I was able to keep my electronics charged for several days at a time without going to a campground or a hotel. And then when I was at the hotels or the campgrounds and I did have access to electricity, then I would charge my electronics in the outlet and I would also charge up this power bank so that I'd have it available to me once I got out there on the road. Um, I will post a link after this is over to this um, exact power bank um, because this is a really good one that I would highly recommend. It is heavy, but this thing will keep like your phone charged. Like it'll charge your phone like 10 times or something like that. And, and I've used this, um, this one power bank, for example, I used on my recently completed five day bike tour across 
Northern California, and I was able to charge my DSLR camera battery, my point-and-shoot camera, camera, my smartphone, and my drone off of this one power bank, and I still had power left over at the end of the five-day bike trip. So this is a really good power bank, and like I said, I'll, I'll add the link to that uh, in the video description down below as soon as this uh, video is over. So, um, yeah. The other thing, well, just to continue talking about electronics and how to charge your stuff, in the past, I've also used a solar panel. And once again, if you go to BicycleTrainPro.com, in the search bar, just type in solar power. Um, I have several articles all about solar power and solar panels that I've tested. I've used a whole bunch of different kinds. Um, there's one by a company called Voltaic that I really recommend because uh, the problem with solar power is you need to have the panel in direct sunlight for the most part. And the cheaper solar panels, there's a whole bunch of cheap solar panels that are out there on the market. They aren't very good when the panel is not in direct sunlight. So when you're riding a bike, for example, and you you have maybe the solar panel on the back of your bicycle, there's a lot of shade from trees that's being cast on the panel, or maybe the panel's not pointed directly towards the sun. Um, a lot of these cheaper panels don't do a very good job of charging your electronics in these sorts of like low light conditions. But this Voltaic solar panel, it, it has a slightly heavier um, panel on it. It's uh, firmer. It's kind of like got almost like a glass feel to it. Um, but so it is a little heavier than some of the cheaper panels, but it works really well in these low light situations. And when you're bike touring, you're oftentimes in low light. So you need a panel that can kind of adapt to that. So just go to bicycleturnpro.com, type in solar panel or or six watt. The one that I'm using is a six watt solar panel. You'll find the article that I've written there um, about the Voltaic solar panel. And, and again, I will put a link to that solar panel in the video description as soon as this is over. Um, da -da -da -da. And again, just going back to um, your questions here, Tim's trike trips <laughs> says batteries and panels, you get what you pay for. Yeah, um, I have definitely found that. Like this, this battery, for example, is not necessarily cheap. I've used a bunch of cheap ones in the past, um, but this one is way better. And same with a Voltaic solar panel. I've used cheaper panels, which are good if you're in direct sunlight, but as soon as you're out of that direct sunlight, they don't work at all. Um, Matt says, what is the most unusual item you carry on tour? Well, I will tell you what the most unusual thing that I carried with me on this tour is. I'll, I'll show it to you actually. And, and then I'll talk about some of the other ridiculous things that I've uh, brought with me on my trips. Okay, I'm back. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to show you. So most of my videos that I shoot on Bicycle Touring Pro are shot on this small point-and-shoot camera. Um, a lot of people think that I'm shooting them on my smartphone, but it's actually not. This is a uh, Canon G7X Mark II point-and-shoot camera, and it has a flip screen, which I use a lot because I'm talking to myself on the camera. 
Um, so that's the camera that I use, and it's a really good camera, very high quality. Um, the sound is not so great on this camera, as you may have noticed by watching some of my movies. There's a lot of wind noise and such. And so sometimes I will use my bigger DSLR camera. This is my good camera, and I actually do carry this big thing on my bike trips, or I've been carrying it since about 2012 or so. And on top of this camera is a external microphone. And this is something new that I brought with me on my trip this year that I haven't brought with me on any of my trips in the past because I wanted to try to get good sound. Um, and it detaches from the camera. Uh, so normally my camera just looks like this. And when I'm shooting the video, I, it just, the microphone is like built in right here on the side of the camera. But this microphone, I just hit myself in the face. <laughs> this microphone um, has this fur on here, which helps to reduce the wind noise. It's also much more directional. So I can point it towards somebody or myself. It gets much more directional sound. Um, but this is probably the weirdest thing that I brought with me on this particular bike tour. And to be completely honest, I didn't use it very much because it's such a pain to use. Um, every time I wanted to use it, I'd have to get the camera out, put it on, put it on the top of the camera, attach it like this, then plug it in over here. And, and when you're bike touring, or when I'm bike touring at least, um, I got other things on my mind. I'm actually trying to go somewhere, and I'm trying to document my trip at the same time for you guys here on Bicycle Touring Pro. So um, I just found that you, even though this does produce better audio for my videos, I found that just simply not using it and using the camera as it is or the camera as it is here was just a faster way to do it. The end result, of course, is going to be worse sound for my videos, but um, ideally, I think in the future, I would like to get a small point-and-shoot camera like this that has amazing sound built into it, like some way to attach this microphone onto the top of this little camera. That would be like the ideal uh, situation for me um, because it's small, lightweight, and uh, I'm, I'm able to reduce the sound in my videos. Um, the, the problem with recording a bike tour and talking to the camera while you're riding the bike, and if you guys are interested in creating your own videos, hopefully this helps you. But the problem is that even if it's not windy outside, you are generating your own wind when you're riding a bicycle. So if the, the air can be perfectly calm and there can still be wind noise coming into your microphone um, when you're riding your bicycle. And so that's what you're hearing a lot of times uh, when you watch my videos here on Bicycle Turn Pro or on, on the Bicycle Turn Pro YouTube channel is you're hearing that self-generated wind noise that occurs just from me riding my bike. And if it's windy outside, sometimes it can be even worse than that. But anyways, um, this is something that I tried this year uh, in order to make the audio on my videos a little bit better. You'll have to let me know if it worked or not. But um, that is definitely the silliest thing that I brought with me on this trip. In the past, on, on my first trip, I can tell you what the silliest thing is that I brought with me. The silliest thing I brought was 
a um, ice chest because <laughs> I thought, oh, if I get cheese or something, I got to put the cheese in the ice chest, right? And it wasn't like a hard ice chest. It was like a soft, one of those soft cased ice chests. But um, yeah, that was something really silly that like now when I buy cheese, I just put it in my panniers and I try not to put it at the top because like the top of your panniers gets really hot, gets blasted from the sun. So I like, I put the cheese kind of down in the, in the pannier, hide it underneath my jacket or underneath my sleeping bag or something like that. And that, that keeps it in the coolest part of my panniers. Um, and that, and I, and also, I mean, on a bike tour, you aren't generally carrying food for long periods of time. Usually you buy food, you eat it in the, in the next 48 hours or so, and then you buy new food uh, elsewhere. So the ice chest is something that you do not need to pack on your bike tour. Um, other silly things I brought on my bike tours in the past, I had a skateboard. I, in 2005, I brought a skateboard on my bicycle tour. And, and, and it seemed silly, and it was kind of silly, but I actually, um, on that particular bike tour, I rode my bike from Vancouver, Canada, down to down through Washington and Oregon. And I stopped at 30 something different skate parks along the way. And so I'd ride my bike to the skate park and then I'd change my shoes and put, <laughs> and then take the skateboard off the back of my bicycle. And, and then I'd do a little skate session at these skate parks. And then I'd jump back on my bike and continue on my way. So I did that for, yeah. I think 30 days, 30 skate parks, something like that. It was really cool. Um, I looked pretty silly riding around with a skateboard on the back of my bicycle, but for me, um, it was kind of a, a neat thing to do on that particular bike tour. And, and I've actually had several people contact me since who have asked uh, questions about uh, how can they do a bike trip with a skateboard and how do, how do you keep your skateboard safe, you know, on the back of your bike and things like that. So anyways, kind of cool. Uh, yeah. Anyways, um, maybe I'll just answer one or two more questions and then we'll go. Cause we've already been on here for an hour and 40 minutes. I'm getting tired of talking, but thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I hope you had a little fun. I know the world cup was going on. World Cup final is going on today. People are saying, oh, you know, got to decide World Cup final or bicycle touring pro. <laughs> so thank you for hanging out with me. Um, Esperoleke says, do you have Strava where we can follow where you ride exactly? Um, that's a question I've, I've been getting more and more recently, but the answer is no, I, I don't actually use Strava. And I and I honestly don't don't keep very good track of how many miles or kilometers I do or how fast I ride. Um, you see me sometimes, I do have a small bike computer on the front of my uh, bike that I use mostly for uh, navigation, you know, just so I know like where the next turn is coming up. I know generally how far I have to ride, but I've never really been one of those people who's motivated by um, like distances and stuff like that. I know that that's kind of why like the Fitbits and Strava are so popular right now. A big part of that is because a lot of people find a lot of motivation 
from keeping track of their, you know, miles or, or how fast they were able to ride or, or the fact that they were able to beat somebody up a hill or whatever. And that's awesome. Like if you're one of those people who enjoys that sort of thing, um, I totally think you should use those tools because, um, motivation can be a hard thing to get. And so if you can motivate yourself in some way using one of those tools, that's awesome. Um, and good for you. I just, I don't feel motivated looking at those things. In fact, I feel demotivated sometimes because I think, oh, maybe I haven't cycled far enough or maybe I should be going faster um, or that sort of thing. And, and I think for me, I, I view bicycle turning as something that I do for enjoyment and I don't want to ruin the experience by pressuring like, like, falsely uh, pressuring myself to do something that I don't necessarily want to do um, or, you know, to ride at a speed I don't want to ride or to go further than I necessarily want to go. So um, that's why I don't use it. But like I said, that's kind of just a silly personal reason. Um, and like I said, I think, I think a lot of people find great motivation from using those tools. So um Anyways, uh, one more question and then and then we'll go. Uh, I'm just looking back. Roberto says, "Have you ever considered touring Southeast Asia?" Yes, I, I've considered touring everywhere, <laughs> and I've been to Asia. Um, I just don't have any videos from there. There are actually. Uh, it's, I've only, I've only been making these videos on, on YouTube for about three years now. Um, so there's about 15 years of bicycle training experiences that I had before YouTube that are not documented here. And, and actually on a lot of my early bicycle tours, I was barely taking pictures. Uh, my first bicycle tour, for example, I was shooting on film, 35 millimeter film, and I had two rolls of film with me on the entire trip. And a lot of them didn't come out. So, so, you know, there's just a handful of photos from the first several bike tours that I did across America. Like my second bike tour, I think I took like three photos on the whole trip. Uh, you know, was, yeah, I think it really wasn't until 2012 when I, when I got a DSLR camera. That's when I started taking photos. And then in 2000 what, 15 or something, right before I got cancer is when I started making videos. So the video thing, um, which is how many of you know me uh, here on YouTube, is actually a relatively new thing. And I'm, I'm really kicking myself that I wasn't making videos from my trips, my early trips in South America and Africa and Asia and all that. So many cool things that are in my head but are, are not documented anywhere else. Um, uh, while we're talking about like photography and stuff, maybe I will just end today's, um, webinar with this one piece of advice because I, you know, I'm talking about myself a little bit here, but I'm also trying to motivate you and help you guys conduct your own bike tours. And, and so I'm, I want to leave you with like one piece of advice for your own bike trips. And that is 
if you go out and conduct a bike tour, make sure that at some point along the trip, you take a photo of you and your bicycle, you and your bicycle. And if you can, don't just get a picture of you and your bicycle like standing there, but get a bicycle, get a picture of you and your bicycle, you actually riding your bicycle with all your gear on it and everything. Because um, as the bicycle turn pro, I hear from people all around the world who have gone off and taken my book or my videos or you know, listen to my podcast or whatever, and they've learned how to bike tour and they go off and do their trips. And I hear from the people uh, sometimes via email, but they didn't take any pictures. Or they did take pictures, but they were just pictures of lands, you know, pictures of a tree or pictures of a castle or things that they saw, but they themselves are not actually in the photo. So um, I would encourage you, like, get somebody to take your picture or, or put your camera on the top of a fence post or something, set the timer, and then stand in front of it with your camera. That's how I take all of the photos that you see of me is I put the camera on a tripod or on a fence post or on a brick wall or something, and then I set the timer, and then I run over to my bicycle, jump on, and take the picture. Um, what I've learned from my own bike tours and also from looking at the photos of other people on their bike tours is that that's the photo that you want to get at the end of your bike tour. If you want to document your trip, you don't want to share a photo of what you saw. Um, you you want to share a photo of you actually having the experience of the bike tour. So that's my big piece of advice to you is at some point along your trip and and Ideally, at several points along your trip, you want to take a picture of you actually riding your bicycle and preferably with some interesting scene behind you. That would be great. And, and once you've done that, please send it to me. Send me your photo um, so that I can see it because I would, I would love to see that. You know, um, I, I talk with hundreds and thousands of people every year about uh, you know, how to go bicycle touring and I help people how learn how to go bike touring, but I oftentimes don't hear from everybody who's gone off and done a trip. So if you do go off on a bike tour of your own, please write to me, tell me how it went and send me a picture of you actually riding your bicycle. I would love to see that. Okay, guys, I think that's it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Um, hopefully you learned a little bit about bicycle training in Eastern Europe. Maybe I turned you on to um, some destinations that you may have never considered before. And um, thank you for the, the questions that came in. Uh, thank you for um, watching me cry. And uh, thank you for your concern over um, my health and everything that I've been going through. So thanks so much. The other big announcement before you go, this Thursday, videos will be returning to the Bicycle Training Pro YouTube channel. It's been several months now since I've posted a new video on the Bicycle Training Pro YouTube channel, and that's simply because I've been on the road every single day for the last three months, and I haven't had time to edit any new videos. So um, I, I, right now I have five new videos. They've all been edited, and they, they've all been uploaded, and they're waiting to be published. The first one is coming this Thursday, and it's a video from the first day of my Redwoods bike tour in Northern California. 
I rode my bike for five days through the redwood trees uh, on the Pacific coast of the United States in Northern California. And I really think that you guys are gonna enjoy this particular bike tour and the videos that I've made from the trip. So the first video is coming this Thursday um, on the Bicycle Turn Pro YouTube channel. Please watch it and leave a comment and let me know what you think. And I will have a new video for you every Thursday for the next year or so. I have them. I have a, a whole bunch coming. So um, every Thursday, that's kind of when I'm planning to release them. New video every week, every Thursday here on the Bicycle Turn Pro YouTube channel. Thanks, guys, so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'm reading all your goodbye comments. Thank you, everyone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hope you have a great day. All right, that's it. Dovidzenia from Poland. I'm going to sign off here on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Bye-bye, Facebook. And now, YouTube. Thank you again for tuning in, everyone. Um, if you want to learn more about bicycle touring, check out my website, bicycletouringpro.com. My book, The Bicycle Touring Blueprint, will teach you how to uh, conduct your own bike tours. You can get a copy on my website or at biketourbook.com. Like I said, I look forward to sharing my uh, future bicycle train adventures with you here on the Bicycle Turn Pro YouTube channel. Hope you guys have a great day, and I will talk to you later. Bye-bye.